Let's uh, let's get the recording started and hope Rocky's mic doesn't get too scratchy on us because Lord knows what's going to happen this time. <laughs> test, test, test. It's a I'll little scratchy. One, two, four, five, oh. six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. Well, okay. we're going to fight Brent, through it. Brent, Brent, give me another 30 seconds. Audience, uh, welcome to uh, Mention and Dispatches. We're season 10. We're up to episode nine. We're still in order. I'm going to jinx us and say we might make it to the end of the season with it because we've only got like four more episodes to go. Um, so far, you know, we've talked games rules. We've talked some conventions. We've talked all kinds of fun stuff tonight. Uh, we're going we're going floating we are going floating and talking some naval wargaming, the kind in the water, not the kind out in space. And to do that, look, I'm not the guy to do that. So I brought in a couple of guys who can do that. Uh, Ian is back. Rocky, welcome back uh, to to mention dispatches. You've been around a bunch this this season, haven't you? I have, and thanks for uh, thanks for putting up with me. Appreciate it. Welcome. Well, when when we can't get anybody else to answer the phone, we call you. No, I'm kidding. Um, oh, that's <laughs> the trick. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we love having you here, especially for things that you know something about and we don't so uh also joining us because he actually does wet navies not just space navies uh our buddy chris weave is back chris how you doing i am doing well how are you all so far so good um <laughs> by the time people hear this you and i will probably have gone back crap crazy from dealing with connections online stuff because we'll be about a week or so out from execution um and, and we will probably want to be executed by then. So I was just going to say, I don't know that executions will be necessary, but if we have to, we'll do that. So yeah. Yeah. Whatever it's... it takes to provide people with a good conference. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. For those curious, we're doing red teaming this year. So the, the theme of the conference is the enemy gets a vote. We're not going to talk a ton about connections online because we've done this a bunch before and folks kind of know what they're getting into. But but that's this year's theme is red teaming and, and sort of the, the op four side of things. And so whether it's a living, breathing person on the other side or some AI or in some cases, Mother Nature. We're going to talk a bunch about different kinds of aspects of red teaming in the professional wargaming space, as well as having some other uh, demos and show and tells and talking about uh, some of the state of the art of hobby wargaming and showing some of the tools hobby wargamers use to the pros to give them a chance to maybe adapt to some of those things if they want. Uh, if you're interested, go hit our website. We got connections online info there uh, over at armchairdragoons.com. Uh, we're the ones that host the archives on all the connections online stuff. Uh, if you're interested, uh, please come join us. It's it's the 17th through the 23rd. The um, we, we broadcast the stuff through YouTube, but we use unlisted links so that it's only conference attendees that can see the streams as they're happening and be able to participate live. But after the conference, we're going to open those links up uh, about a week or so later for folks to be able to to see what was discussed you just don't have the ability to really interact with it so uh, did i miss anything there chris uh i guess i'd add two things first of all um what are we charging this year it's like five bucks it's five bucks but we've got some early bird tickets available for two or three yeah. that may all be gone by the time this goes live so so the thing about it is you know we we don't we're, we're not making any money off of it basically we charge a minimum amount to to try to get people to put a little bit of skin in the game we find that they have a tendency to show up if they have actually paid even a couple of dollars for it and um and the other thing is it helps underwrite you know the infrastructure that we pay for out of pocket so between brant and i um we give the Streamyard people a lot of our money each year and uh, we by no means make it all back with conference fees which just basically boils down to we, we're not subsidizing them quite so much the other thing i'd say is that 
red teaming is one of those terms that a lot of different places, a lot of different disciplines use it in different ways. So we're actually going to start off a little bit with talking about how other people use it. And because some of those activities are actually of use to, to people who do more traditional war game red teaming, we are going to do some, we are going to branch out a little bit and talk a little bit about um, alternative analysis, uh, challenging assumptions type of red teaming, which is technically not quite the same thing, but it's close enough and it's oftentimes done by the same kinds of people. And when I say same times of same kinds of people, I mean like intelligence people that are associated with commands that are wargaming out particular courses of action and stuff like that. So um, as a result of that, you know, it's, we're casting a little uh, the net a little broad, uh, which we always try to do. Um, we always try to make sure that we pick a topic each each year when we do this, um, but we also try to not limit ourselves to only covering that topic. And that's probably way more than you wanted me to say, Brant, but but you're the editor. You can take as much of that out as you want. That's fine. Uh, again, we're just, hey, audience, this is coming up. If you'd like to participate, we'd love to have you. And if you don't want to participate, sorry, we wasted 90 seconds of your life, but it's okay. Let's, uh, let's talk splashy things and, uh, and, and actual Navy stuff. And when I pitched this to the two of y'all, one of the things that I opened up with is, you know, the, the, the topic that I think would be interesting is, you know, let, let's try and piss some people off just because that's what generates some conversation. And so I, Rocky, I'm gonna throw it to you first. Naval Wargaming, uh, does a lot of different things. There's, there's, you know, from, from trireams and, you know, you know, guys floating around on wooden rafts all the way up to modern and, and near future aircraft carriers and submarines and whatever else. There's a lot that we know about naval wargaming. There's a long and proud tradition of professional naval wargaming. But like every other bit of wargaming out there, we get stuff wrong. So talk to us some about what naval wargaming actually gets wrong about naval warfare. Well, they, they get nothing wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's warm. <laughs> so, I mean... This I, podcast brought to you by the Naval War College. <laughs> uh, you know, no, they're not paying me. So that'd be nice. Um, I, I think when we always say, what does Naval War Gaming get wrong? I think a lot of people think, I, 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 I wrestled with this question uh, after you asked it and it was going like, well, what's, can I point to something that's, that's, that's so totally wrong? And I think actually where War Gaming... I, I, not being facetious, I think wargaming usually gets it sort of right, but it's people's perceptions of what they're getting that sometimes uh, doesn't always square the circle. I mean, people people think that something should happen, um, and and but the games don't always deliver that. Uh, for instance, the the classics um, wargaming people always want to go and they have these these giant fleet battles and they fight it out until there's nothing left on the water. That's a that's a gamer's perception, not a game action. Because uh, rarely, rarely did you go to naval battles that just went all the way to through to everything sinking in the horizon, you know, being clear seas, horizons or horizon. But that's what people want in the game. They want the big uh, kablooies and, and, you know, the imaginary glug glugs as the things go down. So the games give that to them, which is not exactly right. But from a gamer's perspective, it's what they want. So does that make it right? Chris, what's what's your perception on that? Well, some of that is not the game itself. Some is some of that is the players making decisions about when to disengage or not disengage. And so um, from that standpoint, you know, I, th- I think anybody who talks about that 
about the the game being wrong, I would say, no, it's the players that are wrong. But but I totally agree with you. It's like, you know, I remember the very first time I played Avalon Hills Jutland, we had played an entire game and we never had a fleet action. And at one point, the German player is heading for home and he and he goes, well, you, you can't catch me. And I said, yeah, I can catch you. And he goes, no, you can't. Your fleet's not fast enough. And I said, the battle cruisers are. And he said, you're going to take on the entire high seas fleet with just your battle cruisers. And I said, Wade, we've been playing for three hours. I want to shoot some guns. And so we <laughs> played out what would happen if Beatty and the battle cruisers played out against the high seas fleet. By the way, it turned out exactly like you would think it would, right? Um, but you know, it, this this wasn't about me making a good command decision for the future of the British Empire. This was about me wanting to, to at least, you know, shoot the guns. And you know, I'll I'll add on to that. I had not yet articulated this, but nowadays I always tell people that the first time you play a game, the victory condition is to understand the rules at the end. And so playing through a fleet action was part of understanding the rules of that game. So so I I, I think a lot of times it's that you know players players don't always think like naval officers. One of the big criticisms that I've always had of movies, uh, you know, war movies, movies with any sort of combat or battle in them, applies to many of the naval war games I have observed, which is, to be fair, a mere fraction of the numbers of naval war games you guys have observed and participated in. And that is, somehow, every naval war game battle, regardless of era, except for the occasional Midway game, um, and, and Midway is the very particular exception because a lot of it is go find to the other guy so it's a lot of hide and seek before you get around to blowing shit up every other naval game i've watched whether it's it's a trafalgar game or whether it's it's you know ancient greece or whether it's you know the the philippine sea or whatever every naval war game ends up looking like one of the battle scenes from braveheart and i don't know if that goes back to chris what you were just saying which is gamers want to blow shit up and so they just sort of slam everything together and hope for the best or how much of that is bad naval tactics on the parts of the players and how much of it is me just not knowing enough about naval warfare and that's actually what it is rocky what is it it's it's a bit of both i mean this is what i think i was getting at is that the players have expectations and a lot of them just want to go in and go uh kablooey and and the end result of that is many times very non-historical. I was a young guy. I went to a war game convention, uh, Genghis Khan in Colorado, and I got roped into playing some uh, general quarters game that I had never played before. Um, battle lines sitting out there, World War II. Well, we just charged at each other. Um, and it was just this, this giant skirmish. And I remember that some of the folks were looking at us very disgusted because we were just having a blast. I mean, we were shooting stuff at point blank range and, you know, marking off hitboxes and everything. It was awesome, but it wasn't anything close to what maybe, you know, history would have uh, shown uh, would have happened. Yeah, who cares, right? Well, maybe. That's what also what Chris was meaning when it's, it's it's the players making decisions. And it's not the game that's that's bad or that gets it wrong. Many times it's the players. Um, you, know, you just, again, you you don't always follow the victory conditions. The, the uh, Great War at Sea, Second World War at Sea series from Aval uh, Avalanche. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. Great, I mean, 
if when you really take a step back from it, there's this giant fight these campaigns and everything. But I've gone entire games and never had a combat. The the ships just never found each other. The fleets just never met. And you get done, you're like going like, well, I I, I won the game. I, I successfully delivered the convoy and everything made it through. I won. Yet it feels so disappointing because like like Chris was already talking about, after three hours, you want to shoot something. <laughs> and it's just it's just like you sit there and you go like i won and it's so unsatisfying yeah at that point it wasn't a war game it was an avoidance game yeah the several hours of boredom and supposed to be a couple minutes of terror and all you got was nothing yeah and in some games i mean there are some naval games where that is the mission right pq 17 the whole point is to not get shot you know, on your way to wherever you are. And, and yet I've heard people describe it as it's the, uh, it's the Donner party at sea, right? You're sort of wandering yeah. around in the cold, hoping you get somewhere before you run out of supplies. And, and in the meantime, there's random people trying to shoot you. And, and uh, you know, that's the furthest thing from, from Braveheart on the water. Uh, Chris, what do you think? So I'm, I'm thinking back, I, I played in uh, Mark Campbell's 2005 Trafalgar anniversary game. We did not quite have one ship Per player or one player per ship. Um, we came close and we had about as many players um, as, as we had ships that actually got a chance to engage. I played for five or six hours before I fired my guns. Now, I actually had a fantastic time at that game, but that a large chunk of that was I spent that five or six hours talking to Randy Papadopoulos, who at the time was, I think, still at the Naval Historical Center. I don't know if he was the Secretary of the Navy historian yet. I don't think he had yet moved to the Pentagon. Um, but it was just a fantastic opportunity. And we just had this wide-ranging conversation. It was fantastic. But I was at the tail end of the, the French line, and it took forever for for me to get engaged. Um, and, you know, it was it was hardcore close action players and we kind of knew that it was going to be that way. Um, I've seen other people, uh, like uh, I was at a con one time um, playing a World War II game. And at one point we had this plan. It was a good plan. And at this one point, the the uh, the destroyer uh, commander goes off on this Leroy Jenkins death ride. And it's like, dude, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I've got another game I have to go off to. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's incidents like that that sort of soured me on the idea of doing pickup games at conventions. Um, because, you know, we, we had a plan and this guy, this guy had double booked himself and we all got to pay the penalty for it. We got slaughtered because he basically... You know, I don't know that we would have won if we if we had executed our plan, but our plan certainly didn't include wasting the destroyers. Yeah, because he just he just charged and they all got blown out before they I think one of them got its torpedoes off. So, so it, it wouldn't have been easy to just tag somebody in and out. Well, the, I mean, by the time we figured out what this guy was doing, I mean, he did it. He just did it. You know, oh, okay. it's we could have tagged somebody out. He didn't tell us I've got another game. He only told us that after we said, you know, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, what are you doing? Yeah. Well, I got another game. This is all stuff about sort of what the players get wrong. Yeah. And, and I got it. Like, again, players want to blow shit up. And, and you know, players, that that guy, the, the problem with that guy wasn't the naval war game. The problem was that guy. There, there are things that ground combat inherently gets wrong in war games just by nature of the war games. And and, and I'm not going to 
sort of regrind all of the axes that I've ground on previous podcasts. But the uh, the recon and intel fight before the main battle is horribly mismanaged in tabletop war games. Uh, it, and I can speak to the land combat part of that because that's the part that I know. I imagine a similar thing is likely true in many naval war games in that you know the order, the enemy's order of battle as soon as you open the box. So that's that's already sort of a problem in developing an unknown situation in the midst of a battle. But whether it's the maneuverability of the ships, the assumption of instantaneous global communication, whether it's the actual, you know, abilities of the ships as 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 noted in the games, what are some of the kinds of things in the war game itself that are less about the players, although expectation management can certainly be a facet of it. What are some of the the actual game component things that that we see screwed up somewhere? Rocky, you've done a lot of these, whether it was Pacific Tide or Blue Water Navy, some of the ones you've written up for us, um, South China Sea, you know, so, some of these different ones. What are some of the things you see that, that kind of get a little gacked up in there? I'll just take it, take, brought, just brought it out to, to naval wargaming as a whole is yeah. I think um, the hard, one of the hardest parts to do or hardest parts to to figure out how to game is is damage. I, I think uh, going back to like what Chris was talking about, you know, old Jutland, you have a ship, you have a couple of hit, you have a certain number of hit boxes. You shoot and you're marking off hit boxes and, and you go down until, you know, hey, it, it, I lose half my hit boxes, my half my firepower is gone. Um, damage on ships is never linear, um, but yet a lot of games treat it just just in that very linear fashion. Um, even going back to like Wooden Ship and Iron Man, I mean, uh, you have... Uh, your oh, your sales you know you keep marking off boxes okay I'm, now i'm down to a certain point i can only go half speed now i can only do quarter speed so how how they do bottling damage um i think really uh is hard to do come to the present or close to the present look at last year with the uh the uh, russian uh cruiser moskva i mean uh, so supposedly hit by two not very big uh, cruise missiles, uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, and it's sunk. And, and yes, there's been a lot of analysis and stuff on that, but I think most war gamers at first look at it, it was like, well, how the heck did that happen? Because there's no way that those puny little missiles could take out that big ship. I mean, there's no way it can mark off enough hitboxes. Um, so the games, how they model damage really in some ways creates false expectations or or people say, oh, my, my ship can survive all that. And and it it can't. I think the Moscow shows a good case of um, not very good material condition and and not very good uh, crew for damage control, um, progressive damage, which some war games have. And I think a lot of people sort of, oh, okay, I, I, my, my ship's on fire. Next turn, I'm going to roll a dice and let's see if it if I put out the fire. Oh, I put out the fire. Okay, everything's back to normal. Game on. Uh, and it, 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 that's if there's anything, I'd say that's what gets things wrong. Chris, I'm going to throw this one back over to you. What, what's your thought on that so i i pretty much agree with everything you just said about damage um <laughs> stop doing that <laughs> yeah um but let, let, let's I'll, I, let me go to some other factors that they don't cover so Please. let's go let's take a look at the battle of jutland the battle of jutland neither commander could see his entire line because it's the north atlantic and the visibility in the north atlantic is always crappy so he's he's giving orders to ships that he can't see um they're reporting via radio which was a brand spanking new technology at that time and and you've got people that are reporting, like, I can see him, he's at such and such, but they're not, they're not like giving their own position, right? They're giving relative range and bearing from their location without actually giving their position. By the way, I've 
seen that happen in the U.S. Navy also. Um, so it's not a problem that's gone away. Um, it's one of those things that you have to you have to be very you have to be meticulous in your training to get people to do that all the time and to make sure that information always gets passed up the chain. Um, Jellico had a technology that Shear did not have, and that was a plot. He had somebody who was basically just keeping track of where everything was and marking it down on a paper chart so that he could come and look at it and make decisions based upon it. That was a new idea at that point because the fleets were big enough that you had to do that. And those radio operators, those radio operators, I, I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is those radio operators are pretty deep within the ship. And so the admiral or his flag, his flag lieutenant are probably writing out what they're going to have the radio guy say, and then they have to run it down to where the radio is. It's not like it's right there on the bridge with him. Um, because of the the there is a separate radio room where all that stuff is going out and you know messages are coming back to him the same way how much of that stuff have you ever seen represented in a war game i mean yeah. theoretically it's kind of baked in there you know in terms of like what the movement rates are and stuff like that but the cognitive space in which you as a guy who's in the role of jellico has versus what Jellico had is a much, much different thing. There's whole a whole bunch of things. There's information you've got that Jellico didn't have. There's things that he's worried about that aren't included in the game. So you just don't have to worry about. Well, so Chris, let's, let's solve for X here a little bit in a couple of these cases. You mentioned the idea of having somebody sort of, you know, plotting on the map. Anybody that's been near a command post knows this is just battle tracking, right? This is, this is a normal practice today, but was a little weirder back then is depending on what you're modeling in the game and how this might be a Accountable through some sort of initiative bonus or some sort of freedom of action based on, you know, that the, the we're incorporating some form of predictive analysis or giving them the credit for that predictive analysis by allowing them to act in some way superior to the opponent. It, I mean, that's something that seems like we could bake into the rules should we choose to do so, right? Yeah, we could. And some games do and other games don't. Because they, for, for a variety of reasons, I mean, if nothing else, there are rules that add on to the complexity of the game, right? These are not the, not the, let's just say these rules are not in the, in Avalon Hill Jutland, right? Jutland's mm-hmm. a pretty simple game. So this is, this isn't the sort of stuff that you include in simple games. This is the sort of stuff you generally include in more complicated games. Yep. And, you know, a lot of times players don't like that stuff. They kind of want to have the freedom of action to sort of, you know, stand up there like an orchestra conductor and have everybody doing the thing, right? And not have to worry about their orders being misinterpreted or 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 stuff. You know, there's a lot of grognards that like the fact that they're representing history and would prefer that. But there's other people it's like, ah, oh, this is just so complicated and I don't like the fact that it doesn't let me do stuff. I mean, Chris Carlson has talked about how with the new version of Harpoon, they really sort of, Chris doubled down on figuring out how all the data links and fire control stuff works, et cetera, et cetera. And the end result is the fire control stuff is now more complicated than it was before. Um, and it's mostly in the form of restrictions, right? Stuff that players could do before they can't do anymore. And they're not happy about that. It's like, why'd you break it? It's like, I didn't break it. I fixed it. Yeah, they're not happy. Part of it goes back to when we say, what do they get wrong? In many cases, it's probably what you just mentioned. 
what do they leave out? And and then the follow-up question, obviously, is why? One of the main reasons you leave these things out is reducing complexity, right? Mike Markowitz's famous proliferation of complexity followed by ruthless simplification, followed by a proliferation of complexity, followed by ruthless simplification. <laughs> and and so in some cases, you're just simplifying things so people have less mental lift to play the game and just have fun, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Doesn't make for the most realistic thing, but you may not be after realism. You, you may want something closer to Battleship, and that's okay. So I but, think my friend Brian McHugh had a couple of, of sort of maxims that, that he, I, I don't remember who he credits for them. He, he basically, you know, if you, if you call them McHugh's laws, he always says, no, 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 I didn't come up with either one of these. And it's, but he's the one I, who I remember articulating them. And they, they are that the sort of decisions that the player makes should be at least similar to the sorts of decisions that the real world person in that same level of command would be making, right? You, so it's like, don't have them do a puzzle to represent something else. They should be making the same kinds of decisions. And the second thing is the game should be as realistic as it can be for its chosen level of complexity. So note that that sort of implicitly rejects the complexity realism trade-off, which I don't believe in the complexity realism trade-off either. I think the right way to think about it is, is for the level of complexity that I've chosen, have I made the game as realistic as I can make it for that given level of complexity? Yeah. And, you know, if you want a simple game, if you want, if you don't want a complex game, you're going to get less realism, but that's okay because as long as it is, it fits that criteria. Yeah. The problem I have are not the games, you know, somebody once said, in um, uh, this was on, I think it was either ConSML or Nav War Games, one of those two mailing lists. Somebody once said, in relation, it must have been ConSML, in relation to a particular game company um, who's, I won't say their name, but their initials are Avalanche Games, um, that, you know, it's like, well, you know, you, you, you guys are, are professionals about this stuff. Um, you know, some of us just want a simple game. And it's like, this, this isn't about sim simplicity, this is about being wrong. When you actually use historical tactics and it causes you to lose, then that's a sign that they have failed the test. Probably. So, yeah. Well, I mean, were the historical tactics the ones that won? Because I would argue that if you use the historical tactics that the British used at Calpins, you should lose. No, these are cases where if you use if you use the the, the combat proven tactics, you will lose. Ah, and yeah, that, I, that wouldn't be a good thing. And I can think of that. That was true. True, they had a Roman a Roman legion game, or a, a, um, yeah, it was a you're you're playing a Roman battle a land game, and and if you actually tried to use um, period tactics, you didn't do well. And I remember at their Great War at Sea game had an advanced tactical game that did not take facing into account, and so the right answer was to put your ships in a blob. If you tried to fight with a battle line, you lost, huh. and they charged extra for that, <laughs> and so. I mean, there's some things about Avalanche. I know people that really like the Avalanche system in in part because they had um, um, it had a campaign system associated with it. But I I saw a lot of things there where I said, you know, one of the things that can really get under my skin is when somebody tries to claim a qualitative difference for something that's really just a quantitative thing. Like, for instance, they made a big deal out of you can have your entire fleet on one sheet of paper. Well, 
yeah, but like, okay, this particular ship has like 10 fuel points and at a regular burn rate, you use half a fuel point and at a full burn rate, you use like two fuel points or something like that. Or it was like a fourth at, at a regular burn rate. And it's like, I can't track that on the sheet. I have to have another sheet of paper to track all the fractions. So they claim that, you know, hey, we can fit it all on one sheet of paper. Well, hell, I can fit anything on one sheet of paper if I don't actually fit it on one sheet of paper. Why not just say everybody's got a single fuel point and track the fractions of the fuel point someplace else? Sounds like you need some cubes on that sheet of paper just to drive war gamers crazy. Or, or something, but it was just, I, I just didn't think it was a particularly well executed design. And, and um, you know, they made a big deal out of like, when, when it turns out those advanced tactical rules were garbage, they then came back and said, well, you know, those were just play test rules. It's like, that's not what the sticker that you put on the outside of the box said. <laughs> the sticker on the outside of the box said advanced tactical rules included, said nothing about them being a play test set. Yeah. So, Rocky, anything else you want to chime in on, on sort of where things get screwed up in naval wargaming here? Well, I think... Um... Chris uh, alluded to some of it, and some of that is just simply, and you talked about it too, uh, search. I mean, if you really want to do search the right way in a, in a naval war game, you probably will need to play double blind, um, which is a whole other level of complexity. But I mean, you, you need to have your plot and you're sending out your searches, and sometimes they go the right place and sometimes they don't. And they report back and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they report back accurately and sometimes they don't. And you're sitting there with this sheet in front of you that may, you know, this map, this chart, uh, if you're into nautical terms, you have your chart in front of you and you're, you're taken to this plot and you're like, well, that's where the bad guys should be. And but my only report says it's only destroyers, but it's like 10 of them. And I, he's not supposed to have 10 destroyers. So maybe that's the main body. You know, what do I do? I mean, if you want to get it right, the search and the counter search, you got to you got to step up the complexity. Um, that's why in some ways, when you mentioned one of the recent games, uh, Task Force, um, the new one from um, uh, VUCA, VUCA Sims, uh finds a game mechanism to try to get past that by doing a chit draw. Uh, you have dummy dummy fleets and regular fleets out there and you use a chit draw uh, to try to, to give you the results of the searches. Is it realistic? There's no search planes. You're, you're, you're still looking at the, the players are looking at the shared board. There's nothing realistic about that. But as a game, it sort of comes a little bit closer um, and it's not as complex as a double blind. So that you got that going for you. But the whole scouting, anti-scouting, um, I'd love the rule in 1805, Seas of Glory, which is the Napoleonic Wars, where you're counting masts in the enemy port. You're, you're counting masts. How many masts are there? You go, okay, well, that's got to be a big fleet. That's got to be a small fleet. Little period flavor pieces like that can make a difference. But what it all comes down to ultimately is how do you model, uh, how do you, how do you, you know, create a game mechanism for searching and uh, counter searching. Um, some games do it better than others. Um, the old Avalanche was very straightforward. You, 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 everything was pre-plotted, um, and you know, you just sort of move around until you stumble into each other or get close enough that maybe you know your searches can find something. Um, it's maybe a bit more realistic in some ways, but again, ultimately in many ways unsatisfying um, because once again, the players, you know, <laughs> you're playing a war game, you want to get to the boom. Yeah, yeah. When you're not blowing shit up, you somehow feel cheated a little bit in the war game. So, 
And I think that's actually one of the big problems that a lot of times you're talking about what do the war games get right? What do war games, you know, your, the question you didn't ask is what do war games get wrong? I mean, what war games get right is they get you to the boom sometimes. But what they're getting wrong there is how you got to the boom. Um, and it just... So, I mean, that's why so many times so many of these naval war games start with, okay, you you, uh, you both start at the edge of visual sighting range and and then you you plot or maybe you just uh, you pre-program a couple of moves until somebody has seen the other and then they're free to move. Uh, so it's it's artificial, but it also bypasses a lot of that problem. It's like, you know, it's a big ocean, little ships. Maybe they'll never meet like Avalanche many times does, Great War at Sea, Second World War at Sea. But a lot of them get past that by just saying, we're just going to set you up right at the edge of uh, visual range and you both know you're out there. So you're going to steam towards each other and, and uh, well, you'll get to the you'll get to the gun range really quick. Yeah, so you sort of led to where I was going to go next, which is, you know, we let off some with what does naval wargaming kind of get wrong relative to naval warfare. There's obviously some things they're going to get right and and some things that, that they're going to nail perfectly and some things that they're going to get close enough to where, yeah, you're playing a game, but you're still in the appropriate decision space for replicating the the conflict that we're, we're purporting to put on the the table in front of us and so with that in mind chris what what's an example of something that you've seen naval war games get uh get more right than wrong or or dead perfect if you can think of one that's nailed something exactly right um i think the sim can games which i'm drawing a blank and there was a world war one game and a world war two game battleship and i think it was dreadnought yeah something like that that, that were reissued um True. if i were actually at home i could go into my storeroom and and they're right on the <laughs> show yeah, um, the Omega uh, Games one. Um, Newberg's games. Yeah, I think I yeah, that sounds right. That they were reissued by Omega Games. Um, they they under they seem to have a pretty good understanding of of the interplay of armor and gunfire. I have a little bit of a question. I need to pull the thread on it a little bit. They maybe give you information in such a way that you're not quite thinking like the World War One guys were. By the time you got to World War II, they were thinking in terms of immunity zones, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure that the World War I guys were thinking in those terms. They were thinking more in terms of what they needed to do to hit. Yeah, the, the games you're looking for are Battleship and Line of Battle. Yes. Yes. Tactical capital ship combat games. Yes, and they're both very good. I uh, haven't played them in, for, in way, way too long, but they're both very good. Um, and so I think they did a they did a pretty good job of getting that right one of the things that i think is that that i think this applies to all war games um but you know it certainly applies to naval games which is not every scenario is going to work at every scale there are some times where the right answer is to say yeah that's just not fun. That's <laughs> not fun at that scale. And you know, the thing that the Avalanche game, I, I did a lot of did a lot of shitting on Avalanche. So let me say something good about them. Um, you know, the thing that they they really kind of understood is that they they had to, if they were gonna d- make this work meaningfully, they had to have a campaign over game of some sort, right? So 
you do very much have the operational level game and then you have the tactical level game with their stuff. So you can do that search, you know, you know, the first step is to find them and then you can actually fight the battle. I think they were much better at the finding them game than they were at the tactical game at the, at the then doing the battle in the hex. Um, so much so that we generally very quickly got to the point where we would use it to generate the battle and then we'd play the battle out in something else. So if the forces actually encountered each other, we'd then play it, play it out in some other miniatures game or ship base three, because this was long enough ago that ship base three was an answer. Oh my gosh, that is such a great game. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> for those who haven't seen it, ship base three was a computer assisted war game rules done by a guy named Dave Ferris. And um, so you needed a computer. It r- ran under DOS um, and um it was fantastic. Now, a conversation. We're just going to make the assumption that everybody listening is old enough to remember what DOS is, because like our two fans that are under thirty, we're just not going to take the time to explain it to them. Yeah, yeah. So this was an operating system that involved um, involved. I, I just said we weren't going to explain it to them, Chris. Come on, you're merling on me here. I am merling on you, um, but I was going to say it's an operating system that involved like like uh, stone tools and <laughs> abacuses and you know uh, slide rules and shit. Um, but um, Dave once told a story on ConsML about you know the thing is if you go and you talk to any of these guys who des- design naval war games, they all you know fans get very passionate about which game is the right game. But these guys all talk to each other. They all know each other. You know, Rich Sartori and Chris Carlson talk all the time and they trade data back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. Their games are very different. Their audiences are very different. The the audiences sometimes, you know, will, will get a little huffy with each other, but Rich and Chris don't because they just, you know, I designed the game I want to play. You designed the game you want to play. That we we designed different games, and that's perfectly fine. Um, Dave Ferris tells a story that really sort of emphasizes you can't please everybody. And if somebody isn't pleased with your game design, you should just say, "Okay, that's great." Um, somebody else, yeah. Somebody somebody said, "Dave, your game is wrong. Ships die too fast. Destroyers die too fast." And he said, "Well, how fast are they dying?" It's like, "Oh, they die in like 15 minutes." Well, in my in and in this other game I used to play, they they it take them like two or three hours to die. It's like, okay, well, how many turns are you playing in ship base? in that 15 minutes and go oh, about three turns. Okay, in the other game, how many how many turns would it take for, how many turns did you play? Well, it was about three turns. Okay, so they're dying just as fast. The, the turn scales of the games were approximately the same. They're dying at the same speed. It's just the one game plays faster. Yeah, it's, it's a more efficient lot. death. It's a more efficient death. You could get in way more turns because the computer is rolling all the dice for you and doing all the other stuff. You just basically tell it how what move move you did measure the distance put that into the computer and it calculates everything else so you can burn through turns yeah option two sounds interminably boring to me maybe it's just me no it's not just you um um, i really liked ship base because i would like to be able to play something through to conclusion um although sometimes you know it's like how many world war ii eastern front games do you know you know games that start at the beginning of the war that only get to about late 43 before the german player says okay i'm done you happens fairly frequently um, because you sort of get to the point where it's just not fun anymore. And, you know, I always felt bad for the 
Russian players because, you know, they had to put up with the this isn't fun for Barbarossa. And then later when it turns fun, the German player wants to quit. You used to see that happen all the time. It still does. That's usually around turn two in a little bighorn game. Yeah. Now, the flip side of that is Mark Herman's Pacific War, where if the Japanese, if it's October 1945 and the Japanese haven't been forced to concede yet, the the American victory condition is only met in October 1945, that is a Japanese victory. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think that's one way that you can scale some things that might otherwise seem fairly inevitable through the, the sheer weight of numbers over a long haul game. Again, do the math, right? The Texans cannot win at the Alamo. Uh, so you've got to scale your victory conditions to do the Texans hold out longer than they did at the original Alamo. And and that that that's game design, right? That that's where where the game design is what takes over from what might otherwise seem an unbalanced situation. So yeah. And and if you can if you can find a hook like that that works, that's great. And if you can't, then the right answer is to say this is not a very gameable situation. All right. So Rocky, what what do you say to the criticism that too many modern naval war games are, in fact, air games? Uh, welcome to the real world. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, actually, I, I sometimes I, I, people want to want to say that. I think I, don't, I think the gamers are still working with how do you really model uh, the war game designers are working with how do you really you know, put in a game, missile warfare and, and warfare at uh, naval warfare at real distance, not just, I mean, the Battle of Midway was fought, you know, 150 miles. Yeah. Um, now we're talking thousands of kilometers. Um, well over how, the horizon. How do you do that? Yeah, well, well, I mean, yeah, not just not just get go up a little bit and go over the horizon. Yeah, thousands of kilometers across across the horizon. Uh, I, I, I still think game designers are still wrestling with how do you how do you do that? Is it a matter of scale? Is it a matter of uh, speed? What, how do you figure? How do you how do you portray um, th- that that action across that distance? I think they're still exploring with it. Uh, one solution has been to make it sort of like an air game, and I think a lot of people are like, "Well, oh, maybe you need to keep working and find another find another way to do that." Uh, the to me, the um, uh, breaking the chains in South China Sea uh, comes a little bit closer. Um, but again, even they are having some problems. They, they when you throw in like anti-ship ballistic missiles traveling across across the whole map, you know, things just don't seem to work right. Or maybe they're working right. And again, it's a matter of gamer expectations. It's like, oh, wait a minute, that's it's not supposed to be that easy. Uh, you can't sink my carrier on turn one. What do I do the rest of the game? Um, so I, I think there's a lot of design space still to be explored out there. But I think also it comes down to the players at this point really just don't know what they want because we're still trying to figure out what the world looks like out there in modern warfare. Yeah, yeah. So similar discussion. How do you do submarines? given that you've got a two-dimensional map to play with and you're not supposed to even see that they're out there well you play blind double blind again i mean it, it it's 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 complex but in many ways i mean somebody somebody who really likes a kriegspiel maybe would like hearing this but i mean you really got to play you know two rooms separate maps um 
imperfect information still. Um, well, the truth is, double blind, you really need three rooms because the referee's exactly. got to have the God view in the middle, right? Exactly. And that's, well, yeah, double blind really is 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 a three-way game, yet another level of complexity. Yeah. Submarine combat is very, very interesting in this regard because a lot of times you've got an indication there's somebody there, but you don't know exactly where. One way to do it is to, to, to do it double blind, but it, it you very gets really complicated really fast. ASW is hard. I used to be an ASW analyst. ASW is hard. Um, it's hard to keep it all straight. It's hard when you've got a lot of resources that you can throw at it, let alone if you're trying to recreate that in a game. That having been said, one of the best submarine games I ever saw was a miniatures game because, and it was very much of a design for effect sort of approach, not as a design for cause one. And the thing is, is that the, the effect... The way, the way that the designer designed it was you could have the information, but you couldn't use it. Like, I can see the submarine on the map, but I can't actually use it. And it was based upon a technique that was originally borrowed from Avalon Hill's Attack Sub, yes. which is a card-driven game. doesn't actually have a map, but it's a card-driven game of submarine combat, and it's all based upon taking actions to increase your contact level if you're the surface ship hunting the submarine, or decreasing the, the other guy's contact level if you're the submarine. So you're, you're maneuvering with cards, trying to improve your situational awareness or degrade the other guy's situational awareness. And I saw that translated into a submarine miniatures game where um, where if you didn't have a high enough contact level, you only vaguely knew where it was. As your contact level went up, the submarine might move, your target might move to a location that's closer to where quote unquote really is. Um, and then, you know, you had to be, you had to get to a certain level to have a good probability of hitting. So submarines are hard to do as a design for cause thing because they, because of the limited information and as a design for effect thing, they can be kind of complicated too, but it's, but if the designer knows what they're doing, you can actually get something that's playable. Um, that having been said, there just really aren't that many submarine board games and the number of of good submarine board games I can are are quite limited also. Well, that's one of the challenges that you run into is that in like in land combat, you're basically fighting in two dimensions unless you graft an air game onto it. And even then, a lot of times you can get away with abstracting out the air superiority battle and simply yeah. focusing on sort of close air support. And helicopters are low enough to the ground that that you can incorporate them into the ground combat model. Once you start moving into an air game, now you need three dimensions because of, of the elevation, you know, the altitude at which those guys are flying matters. And, and that becomes a much bigger deal. Uh, you know, elevation in an ASL game, great. The guy's on the second story of a building. He's a little easier to spot. He can look over the tree you're trying to hide behind or whatever. But, but when you start talking thousands of feet of altitude difference, you really need a better way to try to represent that on a map. And you, you, you know, have a hard time doing that by and large. There are different ways you can do it. None of them are particularly elegant, but, but a lot of people have tried. The challenge you run into with submarine warfare is you're doing the exact same thing. You're just going down instead of up. You still need three dimensions to work with, right? Mm, that's not as big a deal as you might think because the um, submarines don't go very deep. You know, the, 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 the official Navy for, for years, the Navy would always say deeper than 400 feet faster than 20 knots. Now they say deeper than 800 feet faster than 25 knots. But 
look at any of Friedman's works or any place else, you know, you'll see numbers on the order of like a thousand feet or 1500 feet or 2000 feet for various submarine depths. That's nothing compared to, to the level of verticality that you get in the air. For submarine stuff, the real important stuff is have, have I done something indiscreet like stick a mast up into the air part of the naval environment? Or am I above the layer or, you know, your entire submarine, am I on the surface? Or, and if you're below the surface and you're not doing that, am I above the layer or below the layer? That's really most of what you need to, to track. The difference in most cases between being at 300 feet and being at 900 feet aren't really that great. Well, but you're still below your opposition. Nobody yeah. driving a tank around is worried about another tank shooting him from below. That's true. But my point is simply that, that you know, I can do it with a couple of status markers as opposed to having to sort of track altitude, right? Fair um, enough. So I, you know, surface above the layer, below the layer. Um, and you need to make sure that you don't go below crush depth, right? So, so there is the equivalent of crashing into the ground. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I once saw... I once saw some instructions for pilots that said, um, the air is big, try to stay in the middle of it. Don't <laughs> go, you want to avoid the edges of the air. Yeah. So try to stay in the middle. Here comes the 10th season of the Armchair Dragoons podcast mentioned in Dispatches. Let's thank all of our Patreon supporters who pledged at the top level. A huge thank you to Staggerwing, Martok, Patrick Garrity, Fred and his dog, Mike Quigley, Joseph Knorr, Trev Corey, Robert, Patrick Mullen, Kevin Bertram, Chet Bell and Hellcat6 for their support of the Armchair Dragoons in helping us to bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. Rocky, we were talking earlier on over the horizon stuff. At a certain point, the map is only so big, isn't it? It, it is. So you got to figure out scales. But I think, you know, again, much like the sub games, part of it is um, it, it's going back. Well, it, it all it all sort of comes together. Just it's it's using different terms. Uh, looking, finding for finding your enemy. Uh, in the old days, you know, the Mark One eyeball, and that was pretty hard to jam. You know, maybe at night, maybe in bad weather and such, uh, you could interfere with it a bit. But but you were basically your search sensor was was the eyeballs. And you go out a little bit further and you come in. Nowadays, yeah, we're we're a far distance, but it's still fundamentally the same the same problem. You're trying to find the enemy and much like chris was talking about in the sub game what you're trying to do is find the enemy by really many times taking advantages of how they're being indiscreet do they have their radars on do they have something unique about their radars um can you put a sensor out there that can see them that 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 they can't see or uh you know that that they can't detect um are are you um using something that's going to give yourself away so i mean yeah the the technology is different yeah the distances are different but fundamentally in many ways i guess we really comes down to it, it's all the same problem and i think maybe you know maybe now that i'm thinking about this maybe i think sometimes games just get a little bit carried away in the modern days by saying well 
I'm doing something that's obviously very modern and up to date and complicated. So I need to have a game model that does something very modern, up to date and complicated. When in many ways, it may be something like Task Force does that just do just do a chip pool. And and that that is enough of the representation of the chance and the probability of, of things happening that it becomes a game that feels right and it gets you to boom eventually. Um but it doesn't have to, it doesn't overcomplicate it. Yeah, it seems like if if there is a significant technological difference, you need a way to account for that in the game. If there's not a significant technological difference, then then it's, you know, you can level those things out. You don't have to make them more complex than something that isn't featured in the game. You mentioned the the difference between just, you know, eyeballing things versus some sort of technical sensor for target acquisition. If everybody's working off of technical sensors and they're roughly equitable technically, then then everybody just uses the same procedure because we're going to work on the assumption that everybody's using the technical tools and not standing out there with their eyeballs trying to find the other guy. Is, is that a fair statement? I think it works. I mean, I'm thinking back to some of the original even you know the original uh, war games which literally when you played you had an eyeball you'd sit down and try to estimate distances uh by eyeball and eventually they said okay, oh, you fletcher, can use pratt. fletcher pratt yep let's sit down or, or eventually you're allowed to use a tape measure as though you had a radar system that was ranging for you or even before that range finding range finders to give you something other than you're just your eyeball sitting there uh doing it i mean i it gets to the point, I think, what I was trying to drive at, you know, very poorly was that sometimes it's the overcomplication of the rules that get in the way. Um, and maybe you need to be simple. I mean, going back, Chris was talking about, you know, the uh, immunity zone. Um, if you go back to like a Jutland game at the time, uh, many times, many of those navalists at the time was everything was weight of fire. I'm going to mm-hmm. throw this many tons of shell at you and that's going to that's going to, you know, tear you away in many ways that's the way the game model works in jutland is if i just throw enough shells at you and score enough hits i'm going to tear you away so maybe from the perspective of today it looks a bit unrealistic but from the perspective of what they were at the time maybe it looks appropriate um so i mean your point of what is the games get right what do games get wrong? Um, many times, again, I think games get it right. Um, and maybe they get it right in ways we don't really expect. Yeah, are they getting it right enough, I guess, is the, the question there, right? And right enough, and many times, board, and we'll say it again, many times for war gamers, right enough means, do I get enough boom out of it? So <laughs> with that, we already beat that horse to death. That's a whole other issue. I'm a little hesitant to dive into this one, but but what the heck? Um, I, it, it's already clear I don't know what I'm talking about with naval wargaming, so I'll, I'll throw this one out there anyway. The role of Marines has changed over the years in naval war games, in, in, in navies themselves, not necessarily the war games. Originally, they were the folks manning the weapons. Then later, they became sort of the expeditionary force that disembarked from the the, the boat these days we're deploying the u.s marine corps places where no boat can get to like afghanistan but 
you know, that's that's just because they were bored and wanted to be a part of the only war we had going. The the as you look at the role of the of, of how the shipboard complements have changed over the years, is this something that needed to be addressed in war games? If not, why did people do it anyway? If so, did they do it well, or or is it something that could have and should have been far more abstracted than it ever was, uh, or or was it too abstracted and it needed to be more granular? Chris, I'll throw it to you first. We'll swing back around to Rocky and let him think about it for a second. So I'm I'm kind of inclined to challenge your assumption on that. Um, I'm thinking back over the games that I've played on and. Uh, over the years. The only one that really had Marines as something I had to think about that was a naval game um, was uh, Close Action. Um, Wooden Ships and Iron Man also, but I only played it a couple of times before I shifted over to Close Action, and that's my Age of Sail game. And so in the Age of Sail, Marines are, you know, in those games, it's like, oh yeah, I, I, I actually plot what the Marines are going to do. <clears throat> they can fight fires, they can take they can, if they're not otherwise engaged, they can shoot at close ships. They can do all sorts of things. There isn't in, um, if you're playing the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal, the Marines, they're ashore, they're fighting the land battle of Guadalcanal, but they're not really participating in the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal. Most of the games that I play, the Marines aren't, aren't a factor. Um, now, when you get up to like a, I'm thinking very tactically, when you get up to something that looks like an operational level game, yeah, there might be a counter um, and they might have some sort of amphibious capability that makes them more important um, or more useful for certain types of missions. Um, but you know, they're just they're just another unit in that regard. And there's always been units like that. Yeah, I gotta agree with Chris. I mean, the only time really Marines in naval games are those age of sail games where you you want to put your Marines sharpshooters up in the up aloft so they can uh, plink off the uh, the other side's commander, you know, to you know sweep the decks uh, with with gunfire and try to uh, musket fire. <laughs> To try to uh, interfere with your uh, your that broadside you got coming at you, um, yeah, I think I think it's it's a maybe maybe it's a bit of a romanticized view of uh, of how they're working, but it's it's a it's a fun element in the game. Um, you know, repel borders. Oh, my Marines get they have the cutlasses, so um, they they get an extra strength point to repel borders. Um, it's it's a lot of it's a lot more fun. Um, other games, I, I think yeah, nowadays. I mean, I'm interested to see how uh, uh, Sebastian Bay's Littoral Commander is going to go because that has the whole Marine Littoral Regiment, which, unlike the Battle of Guadalcanal when the Marines were engaged ashore, now they're supposed to be reaching out into the sea. Um, and, and we'll see how that plays out, um, uh, To uh, in, at least plays out in the game. We'll see how it plays out in the real world, too. Um, with all the controversy over Marine Latour regiments, but that's that's not a war game. That's uh, that's Pentagon speak. <laughs> but it's it's Pentagon speak of a war game that will be you know hitting folks tables. We hope fairly soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that one too. You guys could have just shown up at Origins and seen the copy Sebastian sent us to monkey around with lad two years ago. I was at. Oh no, I wasn't at Origins. No, that was the October Origins. That was the wacky schedule. Yeah, I wasn't at that. So, so, but Sebastian is going to be. So there's this little gaming 
convention being done in Newport, Rhode Island in August, if I remember correctly, August or September. It's August. Yeah, because it's before it, it's before the big game I'm doing for the day job. No, it, uh, it, it, it's August because people keep saying, hey, you're going to go to that? Well, no, it's the weekend of my anniversary. I got better things to do. I like my wife more than I like you guys. You, really? you need to get your priorities straight. Um, <laughs> so so actually, I that me- mentioning my day job reminds me that I have not said at any point during this, and I should, that I am not speaking for any employer past or present um, and presumably future as well. But, you know, so these are my own views. I'm not speaking for anybody else. Should have said that up front. Don't worry about it. We, we, you've been on this podcast enough that we know by now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody uh, is the key is, is, does my employer know that? (laughs) I'll include the disclaimer. People by now will have read the disclaimer on the post where the podcast is found. Sounds good. Sounds good. But Sebastian's going to be there at that little convention. I'm going to be there and I'm looking forward to uh, to actually see in the game because I assume he's going to bring it. So that should be fun. By then you may have your own copy to bring. I may, I may. There's a lot between now and then. There's a lot keeping me busy. Yes. So. Well, I'm glad you guys both shot down my Marine question because it again goes back to reemphasize, I don't know what I'm talking about with Naval Wargaming. I'm not supposed to know what I'm talking about with Naval Wargaming. I don't do Naval Wargaming. Well, you know, I do naval gazing. So, I, okay, let's let's go back and examine that a little bit more. Um, um, as Rocky said, it's you know the the world is changing in that regard. I think Rocky said this. Maybe it was you, Brant. One of you said. If, if world, it was smart, he said it. World is is changing in that regard, and and you know they're they're talking about putting the uh, literal regiment in um, to do its thing. And, you know, the the Marines are making the argument that they've got a role for that, which means that if you're playing a game at the appropriate scale, if nothing else, the values on the counter are going to change. And if you're playing a game about that theater... Um, and the Marines are making the argument that, that, you know, we have capabilities, we're developing capabilities, we're going to have capabilities that, that uh, allow us to play in that fight as is the army, the army saying similar things. Um, and your game doesn't capture that. It sort of makes you wonder whether the game is is an accurate enough representation of, of exactly what that scenario is, right? You know, presumably if they're changing doctrine, if they're changing T-O-N-E, if they're changing their, their basic you know, their, their missions, then the war games that include them should reflect those changes. And if they don't, then it's perfectly fair for the, for the consumers to be asking, why don't the games reflect that? So, so far, I haven't seen any games that do really reflect that, but I'll admit I haven't really been looking. Presumably literal commander will do that. There's a, there's a comparable discussion going on in the, the ground warfare world where folks with the Cold War goes hot games coming back into fashion. Everybody looks at those things and goes, oh, there's M1s there. There's M1s today. We can just use the, you know, a game from 1985 or a game about 1985 to talk about warfare in 2025. You you realize that was 40 years ago, right? You know, and it's, it's like 40 years from that 1985 game and, and you're, 
at the end of World War II. Don't you think things have changed a little bit since then? But people see an M1 tank then and an M1 tank now, and they go, oh, it's the same kind of thing. And and ignore those TO&E changes. They ignore those technical changes that, that have made units more lethal and with a greater area, you know, in which they can they can act and affect things. And, and they ignore the doctrine changes. I mean, it, yeah. And, and well, here's where I'm going to give the war gamers a pass on the doctrinal changes. A big part of folks playing around with the war gaming is to ignore the doctrine, right? If if these guys do what I want them to do, rather than what they're sort of air quote programmed to do, then then I could win this battle in this completely non-doctrinal fashion. Yeah, except, except that's kind of normal. That- <laughs> That, that looks good on paper, but this is the problem that you, we've run into, you know, that I've run into this. So I was at the center, I was a war game designer for the Center for Naval Analysis for, for, for six years. And then I went off to the Naval War College War Gaming Department for five years. And so this is one of those things that I used to run into all the time where people would say, hey, I've got this game, you know, I'm gonna, I want to use it to do this. And it's like, all right, tell me what the assumptions were that that game was built on. Because if, you can't just ignore the doctrine because frequently the doctrine is built into the game. Things work if you use them in the way they're designed and they don't work if you're not using them in the way that they're designed. And sometimes if you're if you've got a lot of knowledge about the field, you can spot it and sometimes and sometimes you can't. And sometimes it makes a difference and sometimes it can't. Um, one of the things I like about paper war games is that it's easier to figure out what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it's easier to change it. One of my colleagues in Newport talked about how we went around looking for computer games that we could use for one of the gaming uh, projects I was involved with up there. And one of the things, this, this actually happened about a year before I got there. So I wasn't part of that process, but I heard the aftermath of it. One of the things that they discovered is that the manuals are never correct the manuals are written after the fact based upon the spec. The manuals were not written by the developers and the guys writing the manuals did not have a full appreciation for all the places that they cut corners and all the places where doctrine was sort of built in. A specific example I'm thinking of is that they discovered that changing the shot doctrine on an Aegis uh, cruiser did not actually change. You could twiddle the knob all day long, it didn't actually change what the program did. They hardwired in the current U.S. Navy doctrine, and you could not change it despite the fact it said you could. Yeah, but in these cases, though, those were professionally designed things to meet a specific professional purpose, right? Yeah, and it's always important to know what that purpose is. Well, conversation with James Sterrett, you know, when I talk with James Sterrett about that, he laughs because his he's got the exact opposite complaint. He's got the problem with people. He, you know, he uses war games as an educational tool. Yeah. And they've got people coming up to them with analytical tools saying, I want to use this for education. And it's like the problem he runs into is he likes it when the doctrine is built in because he's there to teach the doctrine. He doesn't and, like it. In some cases, yes, that is, that is absolutely the case. Yeah. Well, but, the, but, but, you know, and, and exactly, you know, and again, I'm going back to a ground combat example because that's the stuff I know. The, the Seven Days of the Rhine series of war games that S&T Press published in Modern War, and I think they ended up wrapping them up in Strategy and Tactics magazine after uh, after Modern War imploded. There was a, a thread on Board Game Geek where folks were talking about the way in which the game plays in some cases. And one of my big pet peeves is the fact that very, very few land combat games get the role of cavalry in a modern context 
correct. And in the fifth chord series does, very few others do. And one of the things that was being discussed was uh, this one player was talking about his tactics that essentially the screen line on the inner German border where you found the 11th ACR and second ACR in the 80s, because that was the, their role. They were the the cavalry regimental uh, guard and cover mission, depending on what phase of the operation it was, out in front of their appropriate corps, second corps and fifth corps. And and this guy was saying that, no, nah, man, I don't put my cavalry units up on the border. They're way too valuable for that. I let the German territorials do that job because they're going to get overrun anyway. So you've just completely broken doctrine by throwing a bunch of reservists up on the border where they never would have been in order to conserve an overpowered cavalry regiment somewhere else on the map that only exists as an overpowered unit because you've aggregated it into a footprint that it would never actually have on the battlefield. Yeah. And and so, you know, when you look at it, you go, oh, it's a battalion-sized unit. It, let's count up the, the you know, how many tubes it's got of different kinds of, of you know, whether it's, it's artillery or, it, or tank tubes or whatever. You add it all up and it's got, well, that's way more firepower than your average battalion has, so we're going to give it a higher combat factor. And everybody goes, Oh, well, that's my heavy hitter. Ignoring the fact that all of that combat power would be spread over five hexes instead of one. And, yeah. and that, that unit would take up a lot more footprint, which disperses all that firepower. That's why it is as overpowered as it is, is it's expected to cover a lot more frontage. That is an example of completely ignoring the doctrine because it wasn't baked into the game. And yeah, and, and the and game the gives the player the option to do that. Okay, you know, it's 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 a game for fun, right? That's a hobby game. He's supposed to be able to completely ignore that doctrine and do whatever the hell he wants, regardless of how ahistorical that might have been. So and, and the justification he uses to do it is he'd rather the other guys die instead. Yeah, and and okay, I mean, fine. And, and and from a purely numeric standpoint, it is a rational decision. Oh, it's Sacrifice a very rational. the underpowered units to slow down somebody else so your big hitters survive longer to do more damage later in the battle. I get it. It's a rational decision under those circumstances brought about by some some design issues that either ignore the doctrine or make it impossible to follow the doctrine. My point being to tie it all back around to the beginning is part of the point of these games is you kind of ought to be able to ignore some of that doctrine. If you're going to try to win Waterloo, Bulge, Stalingrad, Gettysburg, whatever, like pick one of the, the, the 12 big games, you know, the big battles that we're always refighting over and over. Some of those losses may well have been caused by the loser adhering too closely to their doctrine, which straightjacketed them to a more creative solution that could have potentially won the battle. War games don't straightjacket them that much necessarily such that they can explore alternative ways that they could win that battle. There's probably a comparable argument to be made for any sort of naval warfare that I just don't know the doctrine well enough. And so Rocky will yell at me about all the things I just said wrong. I, I don't see in the hobby war game space, the lack of doctrinal straitjackets to be a bad thing. The reason why doctrinal straitjackets exist is because, you know, a determination's been made that you'll do better if you follow doctrine than if you don't, right? Um, so those doctrinal straitjackets frequently are there to compensate for other things that frequently are not included 
in a war game. So, you know, maybe, you know, the, if the doctrine says you do X, there's a reason why you do that. And if they, and that's not always captured in the game design because they assume that you're going to follow doctrine. Yeah. When okay. maybe you don't have to. A variation of this. I mean, the the, the, the very obvious variation of this is um, games are different if you include supply. Games play differently if you include supply. If you don't include supply, people do crazy ass shit, right? Hey, why does it take so long to get to Moscow? I can just go zooming ahead, right? Yeah. 20 miles a day, that's insane. I could do at least 100, okay? <laughs> so you outrun your fuel truck, yeah. Well, you outrun your fuel truck, but if your game doesn't have fuel trucks... Yeah, you, you don't have to make the argument for me that, you know, we don't do logistics well in war games. I've, I've written on that quite a bit and, yeah. and published plenty of them at the Dragoons and elsewhere. So, Rocky, what's your take on this whole doctrinal argument here? Well, I'm trying to wrap it back down to to naval wargaming. And I think, uh, you know, at the risk of going back to where we started, you know, it's what do the players want? Um, the players, you can, you can have the greatest navy war game out there and if the players just take it and do the wrong you know do the ahistorical do the non-doctrinal pieces um yeah you'll still have a game and yeah you'll still have ships going on blowing up um and then maybe you'll have like what chris was there that he got into that one game and the guy you know ruined the experience for everyone uh because they went off and they did something that was not um you know appropriate for the period or for the or for the game and such so i mean what do war games what do naval war games get right i mean they give you a lot of the tools um and maybe in some ways uh naval war games are easier to break than than some of your land games are just because maybe these people are not as familiar with what the doctrine was or i mean steve newberg's game the whole idea we're here talking about immunity zones and people are going like immunity zones i needed that for covid um you know it's it's a totally different concept and what are we talking about but in that particular game it's very important and if you understand the immunity zone you are probably going to win that game pretty much every time especially if you're up against somebody who has no idea what 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 that even is um take advantage of the game take advantage of the model um it got it right but at the same time maybe the players are not going to use it right um which makes a lot of people maybe sometimes say the game is wrong yeah and i can think of a specific example of that 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 was a conversation i saw on, on consumel back in the day they were talking about gdw's third world war series and somebody was talking about how the 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 Russian Air Force stuff, the Soviet bloc Air Force stuff was just totally broken. And it's like, well, what do you mean it's broken? Tell me, tell me what you're trying to do. And the guy sort of basically laid out what he was trying to do and why, it, you know, and, and this doesn't work at all. And he goes, well, yeah, you're, you're thinking like an American. That force is not designed to, to be, to be used that way. Um, and so the, the person made the argument. It's like, if you play the American Air Force, like Americans, if you play the allies, like allies and you play the the russians like like they're if you use their doctrine their force is designed for their doctrine and their doctrine is designed for their force and so you know you're going to maximize which is as your, it should be i mean <laughs> which is as it should be i mean you, you and you maximize your potential if you do stuff like that i mean you look at the difference between a russian airplane and, a, and an american airplane the russian the russian airplanes had to do deeper level maintenance on their engines after a 
stunningly short period of time. Well, why is that? Because the Russians make the assumption that in wartime, the plane isn't going to last very long anyway. Whereas our assumption was always, yeah, that's true, but most of the time we're not at war. Most of the time we're at peace. So we need a long mean time between failures and we need as much stuff to be able to be fixed forward not at the depot so that we can be ready when the war actually starts. Yeah, yeah. And that applies to the Russian naval forces too. If you go up to Fall River, Massachusetts, you can see um, a Tarantal class missile boat. It was the, the Hidden Sea. It was an East German Navy vessel. And so the Berlin Wall goes down. The U.S. Navy acquires this thing. It's got diesel engines for uh, everyday cruising and gas turbines for sprints. And so we did the foreign material exploitation on it. We put it through its paces and figured out what it could and couldn't do, et cetera, et cetera. Plan A was to turn it over to somebody to uh, use as a Red Force asset in exercises. They never did that because the gas turbines in that ship were rated for 26 hours, if I remember correctly. And they had 20 hours on them already. Yeah. And so, so they were already getting close to done. Yeah. They're already getting close to, to, to having to do depot level maintenance on them. And they said, all right, we'll just turn it into a museum ship. And, that, and so you can go take a tour of it. It's actually kind of neat. Yeah. wrap this up here with uh, Chris give us a final thought on sort of what naval wargaming tends to get right and what they tend to get wrong big picture one over the world overview boy what an assignment that is um that was 500 words max please show your work so I, I I'm gonna do yeah I'm gonna do something a little bit maybe a little bit different than that I would say my recommendation to players is find a time period that you like and and see what you like in that time period nothing that any of us have said today should make you not like something that you currently like if you're having a good time gaming go do what you're doing if you're not having a good time gaming then maybe we've given you some helpful hints on why you're not having a good time with it you know, whatever time period or whatever you're doing. But um, I've, I've always had good results with, you know, find, find a time period that I'm interested in and then see what the games are available in that time period. Yeah. Rocky close us out here, man. Naval war games, get it right. Players get it wrong. I think that, uh, <laughs> that's where we started, but I'll, I'll echo exactly what Chris said. I mean, maybe, maybe there is a sweet spot of gaming. That's not modern. Maybe there's a sweet spot of gaming. That is, I mean, I know a lot of people, People love World War One games, naval war games, partially because there's a lot of big guns. Um, a lot of your ranges, a lot of the complexity of, of the search, it, you can you can you can game it right out by saying we're just going to start at, at visual search range and and close in. There is not aircraft. Submarines are still primitive. Many times you can just ignore it and and you just focus on the game of that those those naval battles with the big guns booming across the seas. And it's fun, um, and 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 it and it feels right enough that you that you can enjoy it. So so I would echo what Chris said. Find find a game period that you like, explore it, uh, figure out what's what's out there, and 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 worry more about playing the game and and just having enjoying the game than figuring out does the game get it right, does the game get it wrong. Um, this isn't this isn't a, a a history quiz. It's a game. Go out and enjoy your games and and just have fun. Maybe you'll learn something along the way. Maybe you'll figure out that yeah. 
I should apply the right doctrine or the period appropriate doctrine. And maybe that does help. Um, or maybe you say, Hey, this is the time to break that doctrine. Um, you know, don't stay in the van or don't stay in the line, go through, break through like, you know, some guy named Nelson did once in a while. Um, but figure out what's fun. And that's really what it comes down to. They're war games. So enjoy the games, even if they are at sea. Fair enough. All right, audience. Uh, thank you very much for floating around with us on this one. Uh, we appreciate you joining us on uh, on this episode. And, and you know, we're getting close to wrapping this thing up. We're also getting close to summer convention season. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, uh, Connections Online will be imminent and Buckeye Game Fest right after that, uh, which means Circle DC will be in in the rear view mirror by the time you are hearing this but there's also all sorts of other conventions coming up so keep an eye on our convention event calendar we also have an excerpt from that in each uh each week's tuesday newsday each edition of that uh origins is our next big event after buckeye game fest we're going to be there with 60 odd wargaming events that we're going to have going on while we're there and then also as we announced last week on on our show talking about bgf coming up in october the the week of the 20th of the weekend of the 20th of october we are going to be hosting our first in-person little mini convention at gamers armory down here in Cary, north carolina the the one of the best war game stores in the country has graciously given us about half of their floor space to set up our own little mini convention in and and so that's what we're going to do we're going to start pushing some of the details out once we get past connections online uh, but in the meantime start making some travel plans uh, making excuses to get out of your cousin's wedding and start eyeballing some hotels down in the uh, crossroads area of Cary so that you can come join us at gamers armory they, they've agreed to extend their hours a little bit to allow us a little more time uh, and access to their game tables to be able to play and we'd love to see y'all come join us there so that's that's what's coming up in the meantime Thank you, Rocky. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you guys being here. And we'll catch the audience next time on another episode of Mentioning Dispatches. Good night.